Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly popular culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How are you, Dolly? Everything I know about Love Live has officially finished. Officially ended with a bang at my alma mater, Exeter. Finally filled the seats, thank God. Well, I mean, you were so rude about it. How was everyone after you'd been... Quite, quite jolly, really. No one threw really nice stink crowd. bombs at you. No, no sink bombs. It was a really emotional show. It was like the 22nd show that we've done in a year. Um, and it was really nice to be there. Very weird being back at Exeter. I said to the cab driver, I was like reminiscing. God, you were boring him with all yeah, the Yeah, Lauren was saying I was That's where I ripped my tights. Lauren said she knew she was in for like a bit of a ride when we arrived at the station and I wistfully said, that used to be a cost cutter. <laughs> She was like, oh, Jesus, Simon Sharma's here now. Dolly's um, ability to nostalgia eyes everything. But when I got in the cab, I said to the man, I was like, um, oh, it's just so strange being back here because I was here, I was a student here, you know, I was here 10 years ago. And he was like, uh, how old are you? And I was like, uh, I'm 13. He was like, I think you'll find you were here 12 years ago, actually. I was like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing? I've been busily signing 850 copies of The Authentic Lie, my your, essay which just came out. How's your wrist action? Well, I, I have to say, I didn't realise that it was an option to receive a signed copy of this essay until my own shitty signature, which hasn't changed since I was 12 <laughs> years old, loomed ahead for an entire weekend. But thank you so much to everyone who supported that. I've been really excited seeing you receive it. Dolly and I have also written a letter to each other about why we chose each other to be each other's friend for the Audible series to the woman hosted by Scarlett Curtis. And if you'd like to listen to that, and I do revisit Dolly's letter about me when I'm in need of an ego boost. I do the same for you. <laughs> have you listened to me read yours? No, no, I need, I'll download it. Today. I haven't listened to you read about me yet, but I'm absolutely certainly going to plug in and listen to the letters of everyone else that aren't about me. And you can find that on audible.co.uk. I'm not sure if I will listen to the letters about any of the, anyone that's not about me. I think what I will do is listen to you reading it and then imagine my funeral with hundreds and thousands of people queuing up outside Westminster Abbey. God, I hope people understand that's a joke. Your Twitter timeline's going to be fun. Since we last convened, we have a new royal influencer in town. The Queen! She shared her first ever Instagram oh, yes, post she did. to the royal family account. At first, when I went looking for the post that she'd shared, I thought she had her own one, as I found an account called Her Majesty at Queen Elizabeth <laughs> with a lot of followers. But it's actually a meme account. But it's really good. It's very respectful. There's a nice picture of the Queen skateboarding. Oh, the meme one, not yeah. her official one, not obviously. Because her, yeah. her official one's just part of the royal family. She didn't, she didn't have her own one. It was somewhat overhyped, <laughs> the, the, 
the whole there's a new role in town. It's not her doing my morning beauty routine. Oh my god, can you imagine? Ask me anything. There's a lot of Elnet in her morning beauty routine, I can tell you that for free. Other and that comes, by the way, from a woman who loves Elnet, so that's not a diss. Other talking points since we last convened, Greg's sales have topped a billion. That's a lot of sausage rolls, Dolly. Including a vegan one, you'll be pleased to hear. Very progressive and very exciting. Vladimir Putin, not quite so progressive or exciting, made some typically Putin-esque comments on International Women's Day. What does a young woman need to maintain her figure? He asked. Three things. A workout machine, a masseuse and a suitor. Oh my God. Uh, Elizabeth Day, I saw her on International Women's Day and she told me in confidence over a couple of tequilas, which I will now share with everyone, that the reason she loved International Women's Day is that people kept wishing her a happy International Women's Day and it felt a bit like a birthday. <laughs> I've seen someone else say that. <laughs> Jess Phillips has been at the centre of a ridiculous is she isn't she working class debate, but I'm much more interested and moved by her reading on International Women's Day of all the women who have died since last year's International Women's Day from domestic abuse. We recorded our author special before this happened, incidentally, but I think it's important to draw attention to, hence why I'm mentioning now. The MP for Birmingham Yardley said that she wanted to use the parliamentary debate on International Women's Day to read out the names of the 130 women who have been killed by men in the last year. You can watch it as a video. It's very harrowing and very important too, I think, and I'll link that in the show notes. After reading out the names, she said, I could feel the nervousness in the room that I wouldn't finish reading the list within seven minutes and that is how we should feel every single minute of every single day nervous that one of our constituents will wake up dead the fear and tension that we felt in our bodies that I wouldn't get through the list and I'd be made to sit down is what victims of domestic violence feel every minute that they walk around their houses the second they wake up in the morning they feel frightened and that they're going to have to walk on awkward eggshells all day long Amazing she's an extraordinary stuff. woman, I think. She is. There was a brilliant interview with her in the Times magazine. Oh, yeah, I read it. It was Last great. Last weekend. Yeah, everyday hero, isn't she? Mm. New Zealand suffered a devastating massacre last week after 50 people were killed in a Christchurch mosque. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has said that her cabinet are completely unified in reforming gun legislation in the wake of the attack. And reality TV star Mike Falasitis died after taking his own life. This has opened up a lot of interesting conversations at how much mental health support reality TV stars, who are often very young, have never earned much money, are thrust into this hugely exposing kind of quick buck world. Health Secretary Matt Hancock said on Monday of this week, I'm very worried about the support for the mental health of contestants on reality TV shows. The sudden exposure to massive fame, I suppose, can have significant impacts on people. And I think that it is a duty on any organisation that is putting people in the position of making them famous overnight, that they should look after them afterwards. I think that people need to take responsibility for their duties to people's well-being very seriously. This is not the first Love Island contestant to have taken um, his own life. There was uh, a contestant named Sophie Graydon who sadly took her own life in 2016. Sophie Wilkinson did some thought-provoking tweets this morning about it. She tweeted, After a psychologist told BBC News that you can't singularly blame Love Island for what happens to its stars two years down the line, I wonder if influencer agencies in their infancy compared to TV production companies have some questions to answer. Should have pointed out the management also have questions to answer. Suicide is a mental health problem that's not down to one cause. Still, I don't see how Love Island is responsible for some weird workplace practices, for example, Neon Management booking Adam Collard 60 PAs in three months. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. When they come out, a lot of them have spoken about how they are thrust into this endless personal appearance circuit where they're expected to get absolutely wasted with people mm. they've never met, take mm. a million selfies, go back to their, you know, lonely hotel room. And I think as well, it does raise interesting questions about when you are the talent. Like, Pretty talent yeah. is just now the ability to accrue likes. Yeah, it, I think it's a really dangerous place to be of kind of huge existential panic, actually. When you are force you know with an enormous amount of goading both from the public and and your management and people you're meant to trust into becoming a caricature of yourself um to pay your bills i think and and that's it that's your work output i think that's really 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 dangerous i think what sophie said though about love island cannot be kind of to blame for all of it is something i feel really strongly about we have a real tendency to simplify these massive problems for example and actually much as i love a lot of what matt, matt hancock says i get quite annoyed when he says that you know instagram should be held responsible for mental health no mental health should have more money put into it more awareness you know the nhs mental health service services have chronically long waiting lists Mm. reality tv social media all we're ever doing is just finding new modern conduits in in which for anxieties to to manifest there's not love island is just a vessel just like social media is just a vessel so i think holding the producers of love island responsible for the for the very sad death of a young man is kind of reprehensible we need to we do need to look at the support but i think to to place blame on, on any one single program is yeah and misdirect as, and as sophie pointed out you know reality tv is old it's like an old institution now and as someone who's worked on the other side this is not me being defensive but there is a very in any program that you work on that deals with punters and 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 kind of opening up their real life and exposing them there is a, a huge amount of support and management and systems in place to assess them and to make sure that as much as possible they are not in danger or or vulnerable um and obviously sometimes they they get that wrong but on the whole i would say when you think about how many people have gone through the reality tv machine um this is not a common outcome i would say Mm, and I think it's a tragic one and it needs to be taken seriously and perhaps this is like a collage effect of like many number of things all together have created like it's too coincidental that two Love Island contestants this has happened to but I don't I don't think as you say that it can be entirely blamed on just the tv production company i think as well reality tv why it's so fascinating is because it's a reflection of the way we're living our lives and mike's very sad death is a reflection of statistics we've been talking about a lot recently the horrifying statistics that suicide is the biggest killer of young men right now so i hope if anything comes out of um his passing is that these conversations are just only going to gain Momentum. On a much lighter note, Dolly, I wanted to make you aware of two things that are so very you. Firstly, have you watched Phoebe Waller-Bridge's 73 Questions? Yes, and I loved it. I was strolling through Soho Square with that little beret on, I adored it. I love this lamppost. (laughs) She's great. (laughs) Also, we need to talk about Fleabag too. Have you watched it? Yeah, obviously. It's... Ollie is absolutely obsessed, which I love. I love... Like this morning, he gets up very early. When he's on baby duty, he gets up really early to work out before. I know. I know. (laughs) How have I married this man? And um, this morning... he was like, watch Fleabag at 6am because obviously it was on a little bit late for us last night. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely, it's spectacular. 
I agree. It's episode just... two and three even better than episode one, I think. And I love what she's doing with the fourth wall stuff and the talking to the audience. It takes such deft and sophisticated creative hands to play with that and not be it not be self-indulgent. And that's where I think you can see her kind of honing her craft in theatre, I think. I just love it. People have said that her 73 questions is the best one they've ever seen. I would agree with that. If you go onto YouTube, quite often the comments on YouTube are like really depressing. It's a bit like the Daily Mail under the line ones. And the comments under this are just like really great. People saying, God, can you do more like this? Like, she's so creative. She's so brilliant. I'm such a fan of her work. And I... It's just so nice seeing that she, kind yeah. of... Because her, you know, her creativity is not obvious. It's quite an intelligent form of mm. comedy. So it's really nice to see it go so widespread because there's there's you know her work is really feminist and i think she's she's just very natural and to use the parlance for generation i think she's very authentic i think there's a lot to be said about working very hard in your 20s and then finding kind of notoriety in your 30s because i think that is a woman who completely knows who she is and what her worldview is and what the stories that she wants to tell and i don't think alina dunham's going to happen to her because she is so even though she's at the center of a lot of her work She's, it's a character that she's playing and she's so private. She's not on Instagram, I've looked. She's not on Twitter. You know, interviews are very rare with her. Mm. So, because she has been conflated with Lena Dunham, you know, as a kind of as all radical yard. <laughs> Secondly, it's not new, but I've only recently discovered it. Do you know about Nikki's tea towel? Obsessed. Been obsessed for years. Have you got one? No, we nearly got one for Secret Santa for each other, and then we didn't quite work out. I can't believe me... you haven't got one. No, I know. For me. It's me, India, and Belle when we live together are specifically obsessed with it. And sadly, the dice didn't fall in our favour with Secret Santa this year. I might have to buy two. Um, and all but... our other friends just don't really get it. <laughs> well, I, I wonder. I think it's probably quite. Um... It's quite specific. For anyone that doesn't know about this, and I'm sure there's quite a lot of people that don't know about this, Nikki's Tea Towel is a tea towel sold by the um, quite idiosyncratic interior designer Nikki Haslam. £18 for one or £24 for a signed one, so not cheap, about what he finds naff. So the title in Curly Q is Things Nikki Haslam Finds Common. And I'd like to point out, before we get lots of angry emails from people... That this is what Nikki thinks, not us. That also, <laughs> when he uses the word common, I think we misunderstand what that means, because I think that seems like it's a kind of skewed with a class snobbishness. But what he said, I think it's him coming from as a very specific interior designer, like a very exacting man who just has very specific ideas and what he finds, as you say, like, naff or basic. Oh, a lot of these things are things that only people with lots of money can afford. So yeah, no one, yeah. No one's... It's not like he's, like, mismatching china and old no. sofas. It's kind of the opposite. It's, but I've it's, seen people be a little bit po-faced about it, and I do have to defend Nikki Haslam there, I think. Oh, no, I mean, I think... I, I think the list is so extensive and la- laughable and actually... And I so think fucking it, random. And really includes... It, I mean, I think it's brilliant and yeah. I think it includes, like, a lot of his probably moneyed elite yeah. cohorts. Okay, Go so on, read me some of your favourites. These are my favourites. Scented candles. Ibiza. Not <laughs> eating carbs. Pronouncing the E in Ferrari. That's me taught. Being jet-lagged. <laughs> being ill. Fruit in a glass bowl. Richard Branson. <laughs> Halloween, <laughs> saying bye bye. <laughs> Most young royals, 
going to the gym minding about smoking it's so specific I love it I, I know it's only, it's our favourite one of all time and if you if you google things bye Nicky bye. Haslam finds common he's done a few Daily Mail articles he did one Christmas they're not as good though he did one Christmas edition where he said um, they're so random and specific about the timings of lunch what is common and what isn't and crackers and tinsel like tinsel isn't common apparently and then he said um all romantic love at Christmas is common. <laughs> but I love Proposals, that. hearts, it's all common. And our other favourite one that he did in just a random list is the most common thing is loving your parents. Another one on this that I enjoyed was going to the Caribbean at Christmas. Common. <laughs> oh, and all chocolate bars. <laughs> Not eating carbs. I agree with quite a lot of food. I Except I love is... a scented candle. I can see what he means, though. Oh, yeah. Pretty basic. I think it's his word for basic, I think. I think that this is absolutely crying yeah, out for a journalist like Sophie Wilkinson or Joel Golby to do, like, an immersive vice piece. With That's they... your way of hoping that Joel Golby does. <laughs> where they just live like Nikki Haslam for a week <laughs> see what happens just using the highlight yet again as an extensive love letter to Joel Golby Joel Golby if you're listening <laughs> finally met Joel Golby last week it was quite the loving <laughs> what's in the mailbag this week Dolly we had a lot of emails about our author special with Fatima Bhutto, but an encouraging note from our sub-editor, Anna, who manages the inbox, said that even those who disagreed made their points very respectfully thank you that is always appreciated an American listener wrote in to talk about the citizenship issue in my opinion, Shamima Begum's story is a clear example of the failings of the current rules and beliefs surrounding British citizenship and perfectly illustrate how they still reflect an antiquated notion of a citizen as someone from a certain ethnic background, white English. To deny someone who was born, raised and granted a passport in one particular country citizenship in that country for the explicit reason that her mother was originally from somewhere else is racism and ethnocentrism of the worst sort. It says that the only people who are truly British are those who can trace their lineage back multiple generations, which is completely at odds with modern Britain's desire to be seen as a multi-ethnic liberal Liberal democracy. Another listener felt uneasy with the conversation. I believe that Shamima Begum was radicalised as a vulnerable young girl. I believe that the UK has failed her by stripping her of citizenship and refusing to support her on the road to rehabilitation. However, just as I believe she should not be condemned in the court of public opinion, I neither believe she should be absolved. Understanding the reasons why she made the decision to leave the UK for Syria is vitally important, but the truth is that, at this time, we can only hypothesise. Her true motivations remain unknown, and without this level of understanding, it will remain difficult for many of us to offer her the level of compassion that Fatima Bhutto believes she deserves. And lastly, someone sent in this observation. Hours after listening to the episode, I was at Gatwick Airport flying to Sicily. I was in a queue behind a woman in a hijab and her son. They were stopped at the gate before we got on the plane at Palermo and asked for a visa, to which the son answered, I don't need a visa, I'm a resident. He provided the proof required, yet a phone call was still made and his details checked. He turned to me, shrugged his shoulders and rolled his eyes, clearly not the first time he'd been stopped. We had a moment of mutual understanding. I felt pity and anger for him and his mother, that despite providing the documents asked of him, he was still kept to one side. As you discussed, having such a singular notion or idea of who these people are is so dangerous and damaging. We had a thought-provoking email in response to our discussion on productivity from two teachers in Hong Kong. Your recent discussion on self-discipline in leadership got us thinking. In particular, your view that leaders not coming into work because they are in a bad mood is admirable. 
After lots of discussion and reminiscing about leaders that have had the most impact on us, we both concluded that exceptional leaders are those that share their moods, whether good or bad. We think it's important for leaders to be real, to be human and to share glimpses of what that means. Allowing ourselves to be emotionally open can draw people together. If leaders can lead with open hearts and minds, they will instill an emotionally honest culture, which can only make for a happier, healthier and more productive workplace. We also wanted to bring this email to your attention about a service available all over the UK that sounds in its description very compassionate and useful. I'm a forensic nurse examiner and I'm trying to help raise awareness of the Sexual Assault Referral Centre in Essex in which I work and all of the other SARCs providing services throughout the country. Here at the SARC, we provide forensic services and support to women, men and children who have experienced rape and sexual assault. We've obtained forensic samples and evidence to assist in police investigations, provide medication such as emergency contraception and make onward referrals to invaluable support services. For individuals who do not wish to involve the police straight away, we offer a self-referral route in which they can come into the SARC for all of the same services, but instead of handing the exhibits over to the police, we store all the samples for up to seven years. The process allows people the time they need to think about what they want to do going forward. Our team are made up of FNEs, crisis workers and doctors who all aim to make the time spent with us as positive as possible, despite it being after such a horrendous and traumatic experience. We just want people who've experienced any sexual assault, either recent or historic, to reach out and get the support they deserve. I would be so grateful if you could do a shout out for us or add links to our social media pages in order to help raise awareness that we are here such a valuable thing thank you so much for writing into us and explaining what that service provides absolutely that there's an alternative and 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 i think while some people will be feeling like they're in a position to go straight to the police there are other people who won't and so the fact that they there is somewhere where the samples are stored for seven years it's sort of an interim it's a yeah. you know it's a, a halfway it's building up to that point it's amazing to know that service exists. exactly i had no idea Me, neither did i so thank you so much for educating us on that we will be including those links in the show notes what have you been enjoying since i last saw you dolly i drank a bottle of wine in a french restaurant and went to a fortnight of tears it, which is <laughs> are those two statements connected <laughs> I didn't really need to tell you that. I was just being a bit boasty, wasn't I? I'm glad why did I need to? Why did I need to boast about that? I don't know. Still a sixth former at heart, I think. You're out drinking a nice bottle of wine, and I am here while a baby screams at me. But do carry on. <laughs> do you find it interesting that I needed to say that? My favourite page of my teenage diary is just one line that said, "Last night I drank a bottle of wine and smoked twenty-five cigarettes." Oh! Underlined. Anyway, Intense. boasting aside, I went to a fortnight of tears, which is a stunning painting photography and sculpture exhibition by Tracy Emin currently on at the White Cube yeah, I, I think I mentioned the bottle of wine because I did cry basically as I walked around the entire exhibition and that could be why um, but it was also incredibly moving I'm a huge fan of hers but this particular show I found to be the most painful of any of the shows really of any of the exhibitions she's done yeah I think you're going to find it pretty harrowing the first room is a depiction of insomnia not familiar with that no yeah which I think I found very confronting actually I took a picture of the description of insomnia that uh, that is displayed before you go into the room that I'll read aloud because I just found it so searingly true I love her making art out of that 
Outside it's still dark and soon I will see a crack of light above the curtain rail. It appears like something supernatural. A deep, deep, relentless exhaustion comes over me that at times is so consuming I feel like I no longer exist. Trapped between the dead and the living, I fade in and out of worlds, my mind living in a twilight zone. The road to death, my body in a wooden box being carried on a cart. Rocks and rubble splinter beneath the wheels, a cloud of dust follows me. This is how it feels, my painful journey to sleep. Insomnia, it's back with vengeance. The mind churning over and over again. No release, every mistake, every minor note of guilt comes back to haunt me. I swear to God that it's a slow killer. No rejuvenation, no time for the mind or body to rest. It's like dying from the inside. I lie here, feeling semi-haunted and alone, listening to the birds' spring dawn chorus. Yeah, it's very evocative. Yeah, it's very evocative and it's just a very painful experience kind of seeing that particular work but it's very beautiful and very true and truth is what we need from artists so I recommend everyone go see that on a lighter note I loved City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert ah yeah which Pandora recommended me it is about sent it to my mum actually oh so good it's set in 1940s New York in between two wars And it is about a young, very green woman who's 19 going to her aunt's um, theatre where there are showgirls to go work as a seamstress. And it's about her kind of uh, sexual and sensory and life awakening. And I, I just think it's the most... I mean, I love that world anyway. It's very glamorous and it's very fun. Um, and the textural, historical details of it are so in-depth. And she did so much research for it. And you can really tell it oozes through um, the prose and the kind of descriptions of even the clothing and the food and the transport, even like venereal disease and contraceptives, full of sex as well, which I love, obviously. And... Um, Uh, Yeah, I'm loving it. Just full of verve and vitality and fun. It's a really compelling read. Highly recommend that. I went on a bit of an Elizabeth Gilbert binge and I did that thing where I put her name into the podcast store. I'm so glad you taught me that. It's great, isn't it? It brings up a lot of, like, guff, though. You're like, no, that's nothing to do with what I'm looking for. But if you (laughs) sift, you can find the person you're trying to find. Yeah, it's a great way of when... When you're reading someone and you just want more of them. Yeah. This is when podcasts are so magical that you can just go out and find them. Yeah. And they're in your ears, you know, minutes later. It's I wonderful. I love that, like, super basic description of a podcast. <laughs> you just want to go out of... and find it and they're in your but ears. It's so magic when you get Welcome to the highlight. That's what we do. <laughs> when you get to the end of the I book know. and you're like, oh, I just need more of their insight, yeah. more of their stories, <clears throat> more of their wisdom. So I just feel like I've been rattling around in Elizabeth Gilbert's brain for the last week. And it's been a joyful place she's just a modern philosopher i think and a podcast called hello monday uh where she's an american talks, one yeah yeah and she talks about creativity um and its process and also the nature of career versus the nature of calling um which i found very interesting she's mm. so great in that she's like she's so um there's such a sovereignty around artistry and creation when you hear elizabeth gilbert talking about writing but she's also incredibly practical and down to earth um you know she's someone who she's done a whole ted talk on the fact that she's very anti the notion that one has to be in pain um to be creating or that one has to experience hardship Uh, and i think she's a great example of that as someone who walks through the world with a great sunshiny energy and still can plummet you know to the depths of human experience i think that's a wonderful example to lead by um so yeah 
I love that interview. The clip that I want to insert is her talking about hours of best productivity, uh, which I found interesting because I think we maybe fetishise this idea that good work can only be created very early in the morning. I like her approach to that. You already know when your best hour of the day is. You know. And it's going to be different for every person because all of us have different circadian rhythms and different biologies and different psychologies and different work schedules and different family needs. But if you're lucky, you get like a like one hour of the day where actually you kind of feel okay, <laughs> where you kind of feel like you're awake and your energy is good and, and you're bright. You've got your brightest mind, your shiniest mind. My question to you is who or what is currently getting that hour? Who or what is currently getting that hour of the day? Claim it for you. That's yours. That's yours. That's yours for your work, for the thing that you're creating, for the thing that you're passionate about. You take that hour and you put a border around it and you say that this one belongs to you. And then the 23 other hours of the day, give your second best to everybody else. I loved the writer Marlon James's Desert Island Discs, which was a beautiful episode. He's such a good talker. I think it's the most interesting episode I've heard in quite a long time his account of confronting and accepting his homosexuality having grown up in Jamaica rife with homophobia was uh, quite an extraordinary tale particularly the experience that he describes of a quite harrowing religious ritual to try and convert him but it's this clip that I wanted to insert as I feel like it's quite an important message to um, have out there at the moment in terms of how we consume culture and what we consume, um, which is about whether we should write about and whether we should read about upsetting truths from history. One of the reactions people had to my second novel, which is about slavery, which doesn't flinch from it either. Again, it's too violent. I couldn't possibly read that. I, I don't know if I can handle reading such cruelty. My response to that was, you know what? Reading about a slave getting whipped is probably hard. It's a little easier than getting whipped. Reading about abuse is probably hard. It's probably a little nicer than being abused. You don't have to endure these things, but you should know what they are. I actually think we've become weaker readers. And I've heard people say that. I say, I don't want to deal with that. I want to, I really should just escape that. I was like, all right, fine, but that was not what literature is for. I mean, if that were the case, we wouldn't, wouldn't have a single Shakespeare play. What have you been enjoying, Pandora? Well, obviously, I fucking loved Ordinary People by Diane Evans. Amazing, and I know you it? are bound by um, judging <laughs> confidentiality, but I'm, ve I'm very happy it's on the long list of women's fiction and I'm eyeballing you because I think it's really good. <laughs> um, and I just ordered all her other books. 26A just arrived, in fact. Um, I feel like her writing, Diane Evans' writing, is a cross between Zadie Smith. It really reminded me of White Teeth and Sally Rooney. Mm. It's exactly what I love. It's familial dynamics and um, her, I think for me, the character, she was most brilliant at sketching out, not even sketching, illustrating, colouring in felt tip all of it she went deep into the characterization was melissa yeah the way she walked like a cat and um it's just a brilliant book and everyone i know who's read it because it's not a hugely well-known book no just so strange to me how some books become well-known and others don't and um I, I literally just bought a load of copies to give to people yeah. as a Christmas present. I did the same. Yeah, it's amazing. And actually, I think skirting over the domestic and the marital and, um, 
you know, the everyday of nine to five existence and urban living and suburban living. Actually, what she's doing there is is really revealing a lot about the meaning of life. Like that's what I totally. found in that book. It was about what's the point of this. There was a lot of like nihilism in it, um, and probably that's why I was feeling quite nihilistic after reading it. Yeah, quite a lot it of, made like, me feel that. What's the point of any of this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It may, I'm glad you had that reaction because I, I felt winded by it after. Totally. Maybe that's why I am feeling a bit yeah. like that because you really get that sense of... Um, and I'm not a nihilist by nature. I believe, like, deeply in the experience of things. I don't think that, like, life is just about, you know, passing time. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of authors we love, Sally Rooney has a new essay in The New Yorker. Oh, fun. What's that about? Um, well, it's. I found it a bit of a frustrating end, um, but there is her brilliant characterisation of, you know, a man and a woman who meet, and not a huge amount um, happens, but there is her brilliant Rooney esque kind of intimate yet mysterious sketching of characters. That's a very good way of describing how she forms people on the intimate page. but mysterious yeah you feel very close to them but they're still a, but they're held completely back. enigmatic but that as, yeah. as is most of my relationships in life yeah you know that's why it feels so true i think for anyone that loved this is us i think you said it made you sob am i right love it but hate it yeah makes well, me cry every episode yeah i mean like emotion minds you emotionally doesn't it hate myself for loving it but like monster munch <laughs> It holds a special place in my heart as I went into um, labour while I was I remember watching it. it. Yeah, it feels like ages ago, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a Sky Originals film um, by the man that created This Is Us, which doesn't so much pull on your heartstrings as a fucking snip them one by one. Do not watch Life Itself on a Sunday night. I sobbed. Even my husband was like, this is good, but Jesus, this is an emotional assault. Really? This Is Us has nothing on it. The Guardian ripped it to shreds and the critics said she remained unmoved. I have got no idea, quite frankly, because, I mean, it's, it's literally an emotional assault. But I am an easy target for this kind of thing. I really want you yeah, to watch it. I, and actually, I'm be, I'm joking about how, you know, I, I'm, I feel ashamed for loving it. It's, it's just that it strays into sometimes slightly corny territories. But I do think the creator is incredibly talented. And I think you know I've got a big space in my heart and my life for sincerity truly particularly as I get older like I've got so much cynicism in the culture and the commentary that I create sincerity is something that I love so that's why I think I really like this is us it's permission to be sentimental I think yeah I'm definitely looking forward to the new series um but this is there's one particular bit which, I, I, like, I screamed when it happened. And I think you'll do the same really? thing. And that's all I'm going to say. On a lighter note, Dirty John is an enjoyable series on Netflix. Which oh, loads of listeners have told us to watch that. Yeah, it's a, a terrible screenplay. And I don't even feel guilty about saying that. Um, but a very compelling plot. Great for those who love true crime. And I've actually been listening to the podcast, too. Mm. Um, a Los Angeles Times podcast, which uh, is what inspired the Netflix series. Yeah. Um, and I watched the whole thing in one day while signing my shitty signature however many times. <laughs> and it's it's just, I mean, it really reminded me of Abby Ellen's brilliant book, that New York Times writer who, who wrote the book Duped, about how so many women are, you know, fooled by con men. And it's basically, Dirty John is a con man. And um, he's conned a lot of different women, but this is mostly from the viewpoint of a woman called Deborah. And it's um, it's really good. It's really watchable. As I said, really corny screenplay, but the plot is compelling enough that you yeah. can sort of ignore that. Yeah. Um, a documentary I enjoyed before we get on to the documentary, 
that everyone has been talking about. Um, I found Louis Through on Consent very interesting. I watched that. And yeah. at times discomforting. Well, what did you think? I felt like he went beyond his normal neutral parameters with this one. It, but it's it's been controversially received. Has it? Because of the airtime it gave a man who um, says he's been falsely accused of rape. What a lot of people have pointed out is is the truth that the percentage of false accusations is really low yeah. and giving Saif a platform. And he's also like, I don't really believe a lot of what he says. You know, I think Louis really yeah. kind of lays bare his inconsistencies and... Oh, well, I think that's... I think that's the... But I thought, I thought that's what his power was. Mm. But other people felt like he shouldn't have had that platform. I can see both sides of that argument. Yeah. Yeah. I had dinner with my friend Laura and she said exactly the same thing because she, she said, look, I've got a lot of very conservative you know I know a lot of conservative ill-informed people and I know that that something like this is only lodges in their mind and that's the only thing yeah. they they watch or read about consent exactly yeah and as yeah. you said it's such a minority in which this is the incident this is not something and it's such a prolific prejudice that has been so poisonous historically for hundreds of years this is really something that does not need its moment of being defended but I don't think you believe a word of what he said that's my that's the counter argument is that I think I want to know why it was made initially is it because Louis he's tweeted quite a lot about his decision actually to do a documentary on consent from his perspective Um, his victim didn't want to talk to them Um, but I think he also felt he's tweeted about that there was a reason for why he chose his perspective basically because I think it seems like this happens quite a lot with Louis Theroux documentaries in a very different way it happened a bit with the Christine Hamilton and Neil Hamilton documentary where he got very lucky with a big surprise twist in the middle um but it did feel like uh maybe the maybe he wouldn't have given that much time for that to that particular man who was saying that he was proclaiming his innocence who'd been accused of rape had there not been that quite big twist in the middle of the programme that 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 basically when he found the other guy yeah which we shouldn't say for spoilers but there is a twist that then suddenly makes all the claims and protestations of innocence of that of that original man who he interviewed seem very very dodgy I think so I think maybe if there hadn't been that twist perhaps this guy. this wouldn't that he would only have been given a sliver of time perhaps I did read something that Louis retweeted saying you know something 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 I think it all came together in the end so yeah. it sounds like yeah, it was a real yeah, journey yeah. I think it did look into a lot of grey areas like the idea of consensual sex you know so from saying oh she was drunk she went off to be sick and then she came back and then she was sick and you know you're watching it and you're going well, if she's drunk enough to be throwing up multiple times, is that consensual sex? Like, yeah. it, it asked a lot of questions, even in his defence of his innocence. Mm. Like, it asked a lot of... It, it. You know, it made you think about sexual relations full stop. Totally. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but is it... Per- <laughs> Is it possible to A, make a perfect documentary, discuss, and B, make a perfect documentary about sexual assault, something we'll be discussing later? No, I really don't think it is. And Louis Theroux, as you say, really did have his documentarian's ears up when he was listening to Mm. this man, you know, defending his innocence. Because there were small things that he said, particularly his predilections for quite violent pornographic sex acts, that I have to say, and this is shameful really because I think it shows how normalised this is for me as a person who's grown up with such prolific porn culture I didn't I didn't really notice 
It's this oh, one, I did. It's this one thing that he said that he asked uh, the girl yeah. to do, and Louis Theroux immediately picked so him why? up on it and why said, where, where did you get that yeah. from? No, I was really struck by that. But I think that that's, that's quite an interesting, definitely not an excuse, definitely not, but I think it's quite an interesting place to examine of, of how porn culture has normalised mm-hmm. these acts that, you know, in, in past times would have been seen as like very niche or kinky acts mm. that two people would have to be very vocal and on board with and is not seen as, you know, you know, perhaps historically not seen as part of just like having sex. Totally. On a very different note, I absolutely <laughs> adored a book by my once upon a time colleague, the radio host Emily Dean, called Everyone Died So I Got a Dog. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I've got it's, a copy at home. Oh, it's you'll, you'll love it. Um, as she writes, this is a story about losing an entire family and gaining a dog, but you've probably worked that out already. As spoiler titles go, this book is up there with the film The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. <laughs> it's a book about family and the roles we play in our families but also discovering who you are when you no longer have that kind of family framework of friction and love to define who you are and it's about whether or not the person you played in a family that has now sadly passed away is the person you want to be in life which I think is a really interesting one you know without that family who are you it's a really brilliant book and Dolly you're going to love it as she had this very lovely upbringing in Hampstead in the 1970s her father was a BBC arts correspondent so they could never pay the bills but there was always time for Palmer ham <laughs> and she talks about when she was growing up she wanted to be part of a dog family and a dog family was conventional it was safe it was a really reliable notion of home to her but she wasn't in a dog family and so she was nervous of her schoolmates seeing this quite chaotic sort of arty upbringing mm. I just want to read you a tiny bit that I think you'll enjoy you shall not pass I screamed internally you and your dog family ways don't have the necessary clearance levels to cross into our peculiar sphere they were too pure too equable to be greeted with my dad's wake-up calls hands off cocks girls feet and socks they lacked the stomach to cope with my alcoholic grandmother's aggressive renditions of Delilah as she offered Rach and me puffs on her cocktail cigarettes <laughs> and they simply weren't hardy enough to witness my mother asking the car thieves my dad was making a documentary with tell me Keith is this a busy time of year for you work wise <laughs> um, it's an absolutely lovely book it's really moving and it's beautiful and it's very very funny even in its its darkest moments I also highly recommend her podcast that she does called Walking the Dog with Emily Dean yes I can't wait to listen to that it's great she just takes people of note for a walk who have a dog there's a great episode with adam buxton and rosie actually um and they talk about life while they wander around with the pooch speaking of podcasts you've recommended to i'm very much enjoying david tennant's oh it's good isn't it do you know something that i find quite funny though you know at the beginning where he says a podcast with and then the person says like whoopi goldberg and it reminds me of when you do like a conference yeah (laughs) dolly is now on the line it just makes me laugh every time I hear it. I think they should change that. <laughs> Why don't you write and tell him? That's what my mum always used to say when I'd be like, it really annoys me that so-and-so does it. She'd go, write and tell him. She's only stopped saying write and tell him to me a couple of years ago. I think she realised it was wearing thin. And also now, basically, our whole careers is people writing and telling us. <laughs> so we very much understand what being on the receiving end of that imperative is. Yeah. I adored Calypso by David Sedaris. It's so funny, so wise and so clever. And actually on the book jacket, um, the publisher says that it might be his best work yet. And Mm. I think actually it could be. 
Um, my favourite chapter is, and while you're up there, check on my prostrate, <laughs> which is talking about when he goes on a book tour um, and he's it's an international book tour and everywhere he goes, he decides to ask um, people what their favourite curse is to someone that's cut them up in traffic. So in the Netherlands, a common insult he learns is cancer slut or cancer whore. Oh and when he inquires as to whether that works with other diseases, for example, he says, what about diabetes? And um, the Dutch woman goes, uh, no, no, no. Like it has, you know, it has to be sort of a, a lifelong illness. And he says, what about AIDS? And she goes, don't, don't be disgusting. AIDS is awful. <laughs> and um, he's unsurprisingly perplexed by this. In Romania, a popular curse is I shit in your mother's mouth. And another one is shove your hand up my ass and jerk off my shit. He says he's so disgusting, David. Yeah, he is, that's he what is. I love about he him. He is. Well, that's what I love because yeah. I'm so pure. I was stunned. He writes. Anyone else would say shove your hand up my ass and then run out of imagination. But you people, though, you keep going, and that's what makes you the champions that you are. <laughs> it's very, very brilliant. I absolutely love that. His sister, incidentally, was a guest last week. Amy Sedaris, mm. who's very funny. He writes a lot. There's a lot about his family in this one. She. He was a guest last week on Mark Maron's WTF. It's a very funny episode. And they have exactly the same voices. Which Do they? Yeah. I will listen to that. And then some journalism I have loved. There is a brilliant GQ piece in the March issue on um, Jair Bolsonaro, who I just don't think people know enough about, despite the fact that Brazil is the fourth largest democracy in the world and that he is a fascist with terrifying views. And I've spoken about him on the podcast before and... I really implore people to go away and read this piece or just read up on him because he'll really shake the politics of Central America and of South America and it's just not something that I think we're talking enough about, quite frankly. And on a lighter note, but I really identified with this personally and also I thought it's like a lot more about how infantilised as adults we sort of expect to be now. Eva Wiseman in her column for The Observer wrote about flying with babies and the new cultural development which I'd never heard before about where people who are flying with babies leave little apology notes from the babies with earplugs on their fellow passengers seats. A member of One Direction tweeted recently like how cute it was to find this package on his chair and she's writing about this and she says... We should not feel bad when babies act like babies. We should, however, question why adults must be treated like children. Yeah, very Rather true. than a gesture of true human kindness, to me this goodie bag looks like a sign of the opposite. It's a sign that parents expect only bad looks from people rinsed of empathy and have scrabbled for days to try and counter them. And I thought that was so true. And she said, in time, upon sight of a child, passengers will line up stony face to receive their charming pre-apology snacks. Like, we all know what it's like to be stuck behind a screaming baby on an aeroplane. It's fucking annoying. Mm -hmm. But, like, if you don't have empathy for that, then, you know, I just think you're a bit of a dickhead. I don't think you deserve a care package, quite frankly. I hope you're on a plane with me because I've got baby fever, so I just go up to the mother and I say, do you want me to have a go? Well, that's what Eva Wiseman (laughs) did. She said there was a mother she was sitting next to who was clearly terrified of flying. Mm. And she said, do you want me to take the baby? And the woman Mm. was sweating. And she said, yeah, God, please take my baby. Yeah, I did it in Indonesia. This woman was just at her wit's end. And I was like, do you want me to just have a go? Obviously, it did nothing, but I still got to have a nice old go. Did you hand it back or is it still in your handbag? It's still in my handbag. (laughs) Support for the Hilo comes from Pandora UK. 
Regular listeners of the Hilo will know that Pandora is indulging her narcissism with our new sponsor. But to be fair, I'm also a little bit obsessed with our sponsor because of the vital work they're doing in supporting and spreading the word about ovarian cancer. That's right. From the 15th of February to the 31st of March, Pandora UK will be selling a sterling silver International Women's Day charm where 20% of every sale will go to Overcome, the UK's ovarian cancer support charity, providing help to 18,000 people who have been affected by the disease every single year. March is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month and the 8th of March is International Women's Day and the partnership will be running over both. Ovarian cancer is the most common cause of gynaecological cancer deaths in the UK with around 4,200 women losing their life to the disease every year. Around 7,400 cases of ovarian cancer are diagnosed per annum and the disease has a very low survival rate, which is something I had no idea about. Me neither. Screening tests for this type of cancer still do not exist, so raising awareness of the common symptoms is vital in order to prevent late diagnosis of the disease. The charity partnership will be promoted in the 230 plus Pandora UK stores across the UK. Head to your local store or visit pandora.net to find out more about the partnership. Thank you very much to Pandora UK. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In the fortnight since we last recorded, a documentary has become the conversational epicentre on subjects of sexual abuse, paedophilia, consent, grooming, the nature of telling the truth and how we can be blinded by carefully constructed mythology and branding by those in power. It is, of course, Leaving Neverland, a documentary made by Dan Reed, comprising four hours of interviews with Wade Robson and James Safechuck, two men who accused Michael Jackson of repeated sexual abuse when they were children. Rolling Stone has called it hard to watch, tougher to ignore, impossible to forget. It was aired on British TV in two two two-hour parts, and I watched them one night after the other and was really quite winded by its harrowing descriptions of physical abuse and equally harrowing and detailed accounts of long-term manipulation and grooming. I was also shocked to see, close up and in detail, the devastation and tragedy that one man's actions 20 years ago has had not just on the lives of these two particular victims, but in both cases, their families as well. As a warning to listeners, the following conversation will contain spoilers if you haven't watched it yet. The reaction to the documentary has been enormous. From what I've seen, it seems the majority of viewers have been supportive of the victims and keen for some form of retribution, which is obviously very difficult now Jackson isn't here. A number of radio stations have removed his music from their broadcasts. An episode of The Simpsons that guest starred Michael Jackson has been pulled from circulation. Drake removed Don't Matter to Me, which is a song with Michael Jackson vocals from his tour. And items of Michael Jackson's clothing were removed from the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, to name a few. 
There have, of course, been some deniers, most notably the Jackson family and a contingent of Michael Jackson's super fans. One piece of information they seem to be hanging on to as evidence of his innocence is that Wade defended Michael Jackson in court when Gavin Arvizzo accused him of sexual abuse and that their motivations in suing the Jackson estate are purely financial, which we will get onto later. Dolly and I were both so blown away by the documentary and the reaction to it that we wanted to know more. We decided to go direct to the source and I interviewed the director, Dan Reed on Friday about the impact of the documentary, what we can learn about trauma and child sex abuse, how the internet has changed celebrity culture, the creative genius myth, which we are depressingly well-versed in by now on the high low, and whether Michael Jackson can ever be erased from popular culture. The first thing I wanted to ask him was, did you anticipate this almost frenzied reaction? I anticipated a strong reaction from fans um, and I was really hoping that we'd be able to open people's eyes to some extent about child sexual abuse and how grooming happens. I thought, you know, I learned a huge amount when I was working on the film as a parent and just, you know, as a human being about, uh, about how that kind of sexual abuse actually looks, what it looks like. I was really hoping that... Um, that some of that would rub off on the audience, you know. And, and I've been astonished, actually, and really gratified by how seriously everyone's taken it, how you know, how, how seriously people have engaged with, with that issue, which is so, which is horribly widespread. And so I've been thrilled by that. I mean, all of the, you know, the uproar about Michael Jackson and how dare you and all that, that we kind of expected. Um, and all the, you know, all the blowback from the estate and from the family and you know we knew that was always going to come with the territory. I think one of the reasons this program has been so important and will become an even more important moment in cultural history as time goes on is exactly as Dan describes it really breaks down and explains in uncomfortably vivid detail the nature of grooming and sexually abusing children and how it can happen in plain sight. I think for years, in the wake of our very public discussions of paedophilia and our subsequent fears and phobias around it, means that those who abuse have been seen as dangerous, threatening or macabre, cartoon child catchers and men who lure children into vans outside schools. And while this depiction is understandable and I'm sure undeniable in some cases, the reality is often far more subtle and disorientating. Only 10% of sexually abused children are abused by are abused by strangers. 90% of victims actually know their abuser. What the documentary really revealed to me, both in the documentary itself, my watching of it and the reactions around it, is that we have culturally a really limited and sometimes completely misinformed understanding of child sex abuse. For example, I don't think we'd given a huge amount of time uh, societally to the idea that there could be two coexisting truths. One is that Wade and James loved Michael Jackson. The other is that he sexually abused them. And both of those facts, discomforting as it is, are a reality. That bond between predator and child is a sort of Stockholm syndrome because the child is almost so young that it only knows love from their family. It doesn't know that this isn't what love should look like. In an interview that really incensed me, which Dan Reed did with Piers Morgan, Piers kept saying, well, why should we believe them? You know, he said, they lied, they lied, they lied. He couldn't get his head around the fact that the reason why they lied for so long, for example, Wade actually lied under oath. He could have helped Gavin Arvizzo get justice, and that's something he doesn't shy away from, and nor does Dan Reed. Um, and it's because they were too traumatised to face up to the truth of what their hero did to them. As Wade says in the documentary, I wasn't ready to admit 
what he had done to me when I was seven. And I wasn't ready to admit that when I was 22. We have this inability, I think, to metabolise the truth that trauma can silence you. And arguably, Michael Jackson was counting on trauma silencing them. I totally agree. There was a really rigorous interview that Oprah Winfrey did with Wade and James in front of a live audience after the documentary aired, which is available to watch mm, online. It's, and really it's recommended. Really recommended. And it specifically hones in on child abuse. It's one of Oprah's subjects that she has spoken extensively on and feels very passionately about explaining to the world, as I think she thinks that it's still a subject so many are confused by, particularly when it comes to how victims mm. behave in response to abuse. She really delves into the idea of perceived love and abuse coexisting. In the case of James, they talk extensively about the fact that Michael Jackson initiated a secret wedding ceremony mm. between them and they exchanged jewellery and how he himself creates this in- their entire understanding of love and relationships in the room he mm. abused them. These were little, little kids. They didn't understand the appropriate signifiers of love and all its myriad forms. They're being taught this. They're being given Jackson's version of the world. And as Oprah said in that interview, this isn't a pleasant thing to think about. In many cases, when you touch the genitals of a seven-year-old who has no idea of what's happening, and they're being told it's affection, and it's coming from someone who is a trusted family friend, there's a chance it's going to feel nice. Mm. And the fact that the boys were asked by him to collude in a way that I'm sure... Michael Jackson would have made to seem like a very exciting secret thing. I was deeply disturbed by James describing all the places he was abused on the Neverland estate. And at one point he was describing a quite open room in this private cinema at the back of the cinema. And he said something like, we had to be careful not to get caught there, which was obviously fed to him by Jackson. And it sounded like a kind of exciting tryst of two secret lovers rather than child victim adult abuser and of course that is that's so disorientating and that's going to take a long time to realize that that is actually violent abuse and even when there is that realization that it's violent abuse it's going to take yet more time to admit to others yeah that that that's what it was and that's what we saw with both of those boys it took a really long time for them to feel able to verbalize that and something that really struck me is that for both of them it changed when they had children yeah wade said the thought of anything like this happening to koa and that's when he really breaks down it mm. it triggered breakdowns in both of them which i don't think surprising that 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 mental load becomes insurmountable when you have your own children and they start to replicate the kind of experiences that you had yeah it's a common thing whether it's about trauma or not that every parent I know basically says that when you have a child all these memories of childhood suddenly resurface that you haven't contemplated since they happened absolutely Dan identified that predator-child relationship as being one based on three vital tenets it's upheld by these things equally shame fear and love people have um, layers in their psyche. Um, surely, if a child is sexually abused, the first thing they would naturally do is go and tell their mum. Well, you know, it doesn't happen like that, does it? Um, and we we know this from every single study that's ever been done. The shame, the fear, and the love. I mean, unfortunately, yes, it's um, an unspeakable truth, really, which 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 the film speaks, I think, pretty much for the first time in a sort of in such a popular medium. The fear is such an important part of this story and one that both victims go back to again and again. The fact that Michael Jackson told them in no uncertain terms that if anyone ever found out what had happened between them, they would both go to jail. I was thinking back to being a little kid 
and what my biggest fears were and what was kind of the big fear or the big punishment or the big threat in the playground or in make-believe. And other than your parents dying, it's prison. So true. That's prison really loomed large when you're a... Totally. Because it was like other, I think. Yeah, in a way that I don't really think about now. But when yeah, you're a child, yeah, yeah. it's like such a big threat. And I thought about it all the time when I was a kid. Because in an infantile mind of like goodies and baddies from the stories that you're watching and reading and what happens to both sides, drilling the threat of jail, jail, jail in their heads is very clever because you have no understanding of how it actually works. So it's the ultimate punishment And then shame, of course, is so instrumental in the silencing. Personally, I've known that myself in things that took a very long time for me to talk about in therapy, nowhere near on this scale, of course. But most people, I think, have experienced something they feel too ashamed to talk about, even with their most trusted and loved people. And they carry with them in a compartment that is buried and triple locked within them that they wouldn't even know where to find it inside them let alone contemplating opening it and discussing with 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 people that they trust and you can't get anything more taboo i i think you'd struggle to think of anything more loaded with as much cultural shame as sex with children that combined with that fear is a toxic and tried and tested historically effective combination to keep victims in an unsigned unspoken contract of total silence. I think a lot of the controversy around the documentary, and there has been a lot of controversy, I've seen montages of, as you say, Michael Jackson superfans, where there are people going, no way, no way, no way, you know, not Michael Jackson, stems from how unpalatable that is, that the fear and the love coexist. It really lays bare how extraordinary it is that we never questioned this man who kept children like pets. It was sort of just explained away. Firstly, because he was Michael Jackson. But secondly, this idea that he didn't have a childhood, so he was allowed to act like a child. But actually, if you watch the clips, like in the documentary, him saying, happy birthday, little one, Mm. it's fucking creepy when he tells a seven-year-old that he should give his parents a present for conceiving him. Who uses the word conceiving on a seven-year-old's birthday? I mean, how was it ever seen as anything other than really creepy? As Emma Brock wrote for The Guardian, we were all complicit in Jackson's deeply calculating Peter Pan act. All the footage we saw of him holding hands with boys, the way he got older, but his friends never did. We cannot condemn the families too harshly when so many of us shared their faith in Jackson's innocence. Totally. And it's hard because people say that about Jimmy Savile now, you know. Hiding in plain sight. Yeah, but also like that, you know, it's so impossible to find a photo of Jimmy Savile to put on a news story about the most disgusting acts of sexual violence and abuse without him having this like horrible, creepy grin on his face with holding a bloody giant cigar looking like a cartoon. So now people are like, how could we not have seen how creepy he was? And you know, the two figures are incomparable in many ways. But I think there was a similar simmering or sometimes boiling undercurrent Mm. of rumours around both of them. But rumours are rumours. I think Louis Theroux actually is very, very interesting on this topic because he had to sort of reconcile how he was aware of these rumours of Jimmy Savile and broached them when he spent a prolonged period of time with him for a documentary but never really pushed him on them. And he said... The nature of rumours is that they are unsubstantiated, normally about someone with a lot of power, quite far away from all of us, normally so 
unfathomable and extreme that it is taken as a fact that they have been inflated or maybe even invented and therefore they are traded in the stock market of gossip humor and water cooler pop culture rather than analyzed and discussed with reverence or seen as allegations I absolutely agree with that it's and then it just goes on and on and on and on yeah and that's something that well Dan Dan says that Michael Jackson's handlers managed to make sure it was turned into kind of like ridiculous gossip that has no basis so once it was rendered as that it was impossible to take it seriously it's almost mind-boggling how little we questioned the myth rather than the man Michael Jackson the the fact that his children's mother Debbie Rowe was paid to say out of their lives except very peripherally you know she was Michael Jackson's ex-wife she was a a healthy, normal woman. Yet, in the event of him dying, it was stated that Michael Jackson's mother, Catherine, would have them. And then, if Catherine died, it would be Diana Ross. Why was it okay for this man just to buy this woman out of the picture after she'd given him numerous children? And then, of course, there was the dangling of his child called Blanket over the balcony in Vienna, and the skin lightening. The fact that he consistently told people that his skin was turning from black to white on its own somehow despite it being the very opposite of the disease's manifestation he claimed his vitiligo was causing him to turn white all over his body with uniformity there was so much about this man we didn't question that it sort of just became part a larger part of things you did not question about Mm. michael jackson Mm. i personally am fascinated by by that kind of that branding Jackson's sense of invincibility that I perceived from the film and some other stuff that I've read and watched since I'm so interested by the psychology of it the fact it almost looked like he was daring the world at points to find him out his inflated and distorted sense of self is extraordinary the fact that only thing he ever seemed to supposedly love about these children is that they were obsessed with him or in Wade's case, were impersonating him. The way he constructed a completely bizarre public-facing profile, as bizarre as possible, rather than trying to normalise or quieten himself. Again, which rings true with Savile, who made himself into even more of a cartoon as as his abuse continued, maybe as a means of distraction from his behaviour. I also find it bizarre, I know we've mentioned it a couple of times, the fact that Michael Jackson held hands with these little boys in public. When you look at the footage, it is the way a celebrity walks on the red carpet or through crowds with a new romantic partner or spouse. I watched an interview he did with Diane Sawyer and Lisa Marie Presley when he was married to her in the 90s in the wake of uh, one of the court cases. And he is so, so bold and confident when talking about how comfortable he is sharing a bed with little boys and how he doesn't intend to stop because it's completely pure and innocent. At one point, he says on having little boys in his bed, if you're talking about sex, go to the guy down the street because it's not Michael Jackson. I mean, just the brazenness. Even just like talking about himself in the third person, it just shows this extraordinary belief in himself as this almighty, indestructible force. CJ, actually, before we started recording, was the one who pointed out that his last album was called Invincible. There's actually a great Jezebel piece that we should link to that talks about this very idea of how much he was almost daring people through his work and his lyrics to find out what he was up to. I would love to read a piece or watch an interview by Lisa Marie Presley now. I mean, I'm sure she's Mm. got absolutely no interest in sharing her thoughts Mm. publicly. But God, I'd love to know what she thought of that time. I wondered, is this a product of the time? Pre-internet, could celebrities get away with more? Mm. Certainly they were scrutinised less. And I said to Dan, there's surely no way that this would happen now. 
we always like to think of the past as being a more innocent time. I don't know if it was. I think people were just less well informed. They didn't have the internet, mm. and um, and they weren't confronted with. It, it was harder to share information. It was harder for people to sort of group together. And so I think you know the, the story very quickly became tabloid fodder. And I think as soon as it became lurid and and sort of larger than life, and I think the Jackson media handle, handlers were very clever in this way that they sort of fed it to the tabloids and it became all tainted and all silly. Jackson public relations people positioned his story in the tabloid space or helped to do that and that created this sort of aura of unreality around around him and I think that partly sort of confused people and then of course he was such a megastar and you know people were so kind of dazzled by his his impact his talent his stature the general chorus of approval from you know Lady Di and President Reagan and you know, everybody saying what a great guy he was. Uh, that the fact that he was hanging around with children, little boys, and affected this kind of childlike demeanour was accepted. I, you know, I think he'd find it harder. I think he would find it harder these days to bamboozle the world the way he did. Clearly, saying you know I never had a childhood doesn't mean that you literally hang around with little boys all the time and take them to bed. I mean, that makes no sense, does it, really? If you think about it, it's more than two seconds. I mean, it was all so creepy, that Martin Bashir interview with Michael Jackson and Gavin. I want to revisit that Martin Bashir documentary because I remember watching it when he, when Michael Jackson died and being quite upset by the fact I felt like Martin Bashir had exhibited really poor journalistic methods and ethics to a man who was visibly very fragile. But I just wonder how much of that was me watching the story through the creative genius prism and kind of brushing away more uncomfortable information. Has he commented on the documentary Martin Bashir? Don't know. God, he was such like a he was such a sensation of a time, wasn't mm. he, Martin Bashir? Mm. Didn't he do that Princess Diana one as well? Yeah, watch go back to that all the time. It's something we've spoken about before on the high low and it's so apparent with leaving Neverland. So apparent because the mothers were so in his thrall. Part of them it still seems like they are a little bit. Amanda Petrosich writes in The New Yorker that the documentary really conveys just how exhilarating it was for these boys to be picked out by the most widely idolised pop star on earth. But of course, in order to seduce these boys, Michael Jackson had to seduce their entire families. He had to play the long game, really. And what he offered these whole families is an enchanted, rarefied lifestyle. Mm. And Stephanie Safechuck says, still a bit in awe, they fly you first class, you have a limo waiting, it's amazing. Mm. They were blinded, really, by him and his life. In the documentary, Wade calls it a seduction, and I found that really poignant. And Dan Reed spoke about how the grooming of the boys, this seduction, didn't just happen to them, but to their whole families. In Oprah's special, Oprah Winfrey's special that she recorded for broadcast right after the uh, part two ad in the United States, she also says child sex abuse is a misnomer. It should be called child seduction because the child experiences it as seduction and, and not as, as abuse, not as something violent or unpleasant. Um, you know, I think the same goes for the mums. The mums were groomed. The mums thought this was amazing and it was brilliant and that their, their little boys were getting a, an amazing opportunity to hang out with this great artist and to, you know, glow and the glory would rub off on them. And in particular ways, you know, would, would uh, his show business career, such as it was, even when he was seven, would benefit from his association with Michael Jackson. So there was like multiple lures, you know, and mm. Jackson used those very cunningly, I think, in, in order to get the little boys in, in his bed. 
I found that a really interesting part of the programme and subsequent interview with Oprah, that idea of seduction. Something that Oprah kept mentioning that I thought was really important was reminding particularly much younger viewers the extent of Michael Jackson's celebrity and his power and significance at the time. There almost isn't a figure we can no, compare it to No, now. it's incomparable. In an internet age, people are taken down so easily. You yeah. know, they do one thing wrong, then it's all over the internet. Pre-internet, it was, it was harder to knock people's footing. And pre-internet, it was the era of an untouchable, unreachable, deified legend that mm. you only got snippets of in mm. interviews or on stage or from listening to their album. And... I think that's important when thinking about how two very ordinary families who were dreaming of very big things for their sons, how exciting and unfathomable it was to have this legend enter their lives. And both mothers describe so well how they were tricked into thinking Michael Jackson needed them just as much as they needed Mm. him, both financially and for the future of their sons. One of the mothers said that something he always would say was that he only felt at home and himself when he would enter into their very modest family Mm. house and he would kind of constantly say to them that there was something very special about them and their home that they've created and their families that that this kind of superstar desperately needed you know one of the mothers said she thought of them him as um a son of her own it's so clever and calculated to flatter these women like that in order to infiltrate their families um, and their decision making for their families. Mm, I think having the mother as a part of the documentary really added another dimension mm. because you know I was flabbergasted when she said that about Michael. I'm thinking, even if you adored him, how did you think this man was one of your sons? Mm. You know, it just shows how absolutely brainwashed, persuasive, can, yeah, yeah, by by the sort of um, intense charisma of someone. I think that's one of the saddest parts of the whole documentary. In fact, the last 15 minutes of really much more emotional yes. than the earlier parts of the documentary which are actually strangely rational and calm um, and there's a bit where Wade's sister says near the end that she was angry and hurt for her brother but she feared that her mother would commit suicide as how could she live with herself after that and I think that's a question a lot of the viewers will have is how as a mother do you live with yourself after that and I think they're brave for going on and for admitting how little they knew about the way Michael Jackson was operating and their and their naivety because I I think there's been a lot of judgment their way for that and just when when Wade's sister says that you God you feel it because it it's broken their family apart. Completely. Wade's brother is furious. He's furious that they ever really even allowed him to enter their life. You can tell he was sceptical really the whole way through. This man, you know, they were obviously always talking about this man in the thrall of this man. And he seems the angriest. I think it's extraordinary when you when you listen to Wade's brother speaking with this incredibly thick Australian accent. And for me, that was such a reminder throughout the whole thing. And then Wade has this very Americanized mm, accent because mm. Michael Jackson persuaded Wade's mother to leave half her family and and uproot. Yeah, the parents broke up and come to America. And but it was such a reminder when you would hear Wade's brother. It sounded like he was just from a completely different family, which in essence he was because they were broken apart. It's yeah, completely yeah. tragic. I totally understand why there is so much anger and confusion and blame placed on the mothers. But I have to say, I am finding there is slightly too judgmental and minimising tone in some of the conversations about the mothers and how they could have let this happen. We've seen how it happened. Power, money, manipulation. And children who were seemingly happy and seemingly had all their dreams come true. As we've said, these women were groomed. 
Yeah, I think that the minimising tone in the conversation about the mothers, this is obviously an entirely different um, crime, but we saw that a lot in the Madeleine McCann story, like, you know, how could the parents leave the children in a hotel room and go up and check on them? Well, I know people who still do that. You know, that that was not a wholly unusual act, and they were vilified for making that error. And God, it's easy, isn't it, to vilify the mistakes of others when it comes to parenting, that just lack of empathy for how could they be so mm. foolish. Something else that really annoyed me in the response to this documentary, um, again, Piers Morgan really espoused this in the, in the Good Morning Britain interview, um, was the idea that because some boys, Macaulay Culkin and Corey Feldman, for example, two famous child actors at the time who were close to Jackson, said that Michael Jackson didn't rape them, that he couldn't be a rapist because he didn't rape them. That if someone says well, he didn't rape me, then that means, oh, well, then he didn't rape anyone because rapists rape. That's what rapists do. He couldn't possibly rape some children and not others. And I personally think it's he didn't rape them if he didn't rape them because they were too famous. I think it was too risky, unlike Wade and James, who were unknown and who were elevated by this star power. I think, to me, that seems pretty tactical. I mean, you make a good point. The, The, you know, Corey and Macaulay were already in the public eye and perhaps molesting them would have been more dangerous if indeed they weren't molested. You know, I just don't know. But um, Jackson certainly honed in on a certain type. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, the fact that, you know, he, he didn't rape every single boy he came across, or, or, or according to them, he didn't, um, doesn't mean that, he, that what Wade and James are saying isn't true. My view is that Jackson did have sex with you know, most of the boys certainly who shared his bed. I can't imagine listening to what Wade and James are saying that any prepubescent boy in Jackson's bed would not have come in for the set for a similar treatment to to what he did to them. Once they hit fifteen, that was a different matter. He wasn't as interested in them sexually. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, to say that you know here here are three boys who weren't molested is of no evidential value at all when it comes to trying to determine the truth of Wade James's claims. And it should be abundantly clear that this is not a man who was random in his choices. Mm. If you listen to Wade and James's accounts of abuse, this is a person who was incredibly, incredibly calculated and very much aware of potential repercussions if word ever got out. So it doesn't surprise me at all that he also may have chosen young, famous boys to have on side just as friends or companions whom he never touched who would be able to be spokespeople to defend him. Speaking of evidence, that's another thing that people were saying that I found extraordinary. Where is the evidence? And Dan said it's in the multiple interviews. The evidence is the boys. The evidence is this four-hour documentary. Yeah, I agree. That really feeds into historic rape culture, though, that accounts of victims are just not valid enough. I don't know how anyone can hear them speak about the detail of the sexual abuse and not see that as evidence or see the way that James's hands tremble when he produces the box of jewellery that Jackson gave him, that the rings, as you speak of in those marriage ceremonies, in exchange for sexual favours. In interviews since the documentary, Dan Reed has revealed that that scene took hours to film. He was so troubled visibly by those rings. It was was very, very upsetting to watch. And yet he can't get rid of them. He's still very much battling. And Dan says he feels like James is battling with this more than Wade. He's very much battling with the fact that he loved Jackson despite what he did. It's an uncomfortable truth, but it is a truth. 
On that note, there have been a few pieces about the level of sexual description in the documentary. There was a piece written by Nyla Burton on Vulture about the emotional labour placed on the victims in the documentary. She says that Leaving Neverland and Surviving R. Kelly, a documentary which I'd hoped to find time to watch before today, but haven't, but I still plan on watching, asks too much of its victims. Burton writes, If the exposure of trauma and violence becomes entertainment, will the pain of sexual assault survivors be commercialised? as we've seen happen with the true crime genre, will survivors be expected to expose every graphic detail of their violation to be believed? I've been thinking about that piece a lot. I think Mm. it raises some really interesting points about the true crime genre, about um, sensationalism and our appetite for quote-unquote gruesome Mm. deviancy. Do you agree with that criticism, Dolly? Was there too much detail? Was it necessary? I did find the graphic detail of those parts very, very difficult to watch. But to go back to the words of Marlon James, as we discussed at the beginning of this episode, not as difficult as it was for those boys to live through and then Mm. speak publicly about in detail as grown men. In terms of the pressure it put on them, I'm sure it was horrific, but I'm also fairly sure speaking about it on their terms and in a safe environment with a director who wanted to tell their story... That that, that that would have been their choice. And actually, I hate that it took this, but I do think the level of detail of, of what child sexual abuse looks like is part of the reason people have taken this story so seriously. I totally agree. It's one of the many things that has culturally and conversationally yeah. transformed this story from the world of silly rumour and an offhand, oh, Michael Jackson likes kids comment to this is a really, really disturbing set of accusations that have to be taken seriously. And I agree with that article. I hate that it took that and that the victims had to go through that humiliating trauma so publicly. But that's still where we are in terms of discussing rape and believing victims. It's a very sad truth. We have a very long way to go. Of course, a lot of people want to know if Dan will be making any more Michael Jackson documentaries. My best friend wants to know, would he make one with all those who were complicit? So the entire Neverland circle. For example, who was booking the hotel rooms so that Michael Jackson had boys in his bed and that those boys' parents were the other side of their hotel? Something I asked Dan about. The issue of who knew what and when did they know it? You know, what point did they realise that something really bad was going on? These people, when questioned, will usually deny that they knew anything. It's very hard to prove a sort of psychological point with, with people who, who to this day deny that, you know, they thought anything was wrong. And, you know, they could point to the fact that these boys' mothers allowed their sons to share Michael's bed. And if the mothers were okay with it, then why should Michael Jackson's chief of staff or his secretary be concerned uh, if the mothers were okay? I mean, that slightly is a, is a false point because clearly these members of Jackson's household saw a procession of little boys little boy after little boy after little boy going you know being brought in and being you know ushered into jackson's bedroom for the night and we know that um, certain members of staff warned their colleagues not never to leave their little children in michael's company alone this is the issue at the center of the court case that wade and james are suing uh, have, have launched against the jackson estate and so I, you know, I, I didn't want to take on too many different types of allegations at the same time. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to limit myself really to these two families' relationship with Jackson and, you know, their attempt to come to terms with what had happened to their, their little boys. We've left this question until the very end because 
truly it's the least important question in the conversation around this documentary, but it is one that many are asking, which is, what do we do with the music of Michael Jackson? What do we do with the most celebrated pop music ever made? How can we listen to it? Can we listen to it? Will his work be erased from popular culture or is it just that it can no longer be celebrated? Jonathan Dean spoke about this in Sunday Times Culture when he interviewed Dan before the documentary came out. It was the first thing I read about it, actually. And he said for him, not listening to Michael Jackson's music was less about the morality and more about avoiding disturbing images when he listened to the music. You know, those two things were indelibly connected Mm. for him. And that's entirely how I feel about it. There's actually a new book out about Michael Jackson, which has got very little attention because everyone is diverted by the documentary. It's called The Awfully Big Adventure, Michael Jackson and the Afterlife by Paul Morley. And Fiona Sturgis is writing about it for The Guardian. And she says it's already dated because of the climate in which it's landed in. Of all his incarnations, she writes, it's Jackson the abuser that looms largest. The current question is no longer how we should look at his cultural contribution, but whether we should engage with it at all. He was once merely an artist with problems. Now he is a problematic artist to be filed alongside Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby. And going back further, Gauguin, Wagner and Caravaggio. Dan said to Vulture that he can understand why people are really grappling with this idea that he could be a paedophile and therefore sort of resisting the documentary Mm. because another nice thing in the world has gone dark. And I think that's very insightful Mm. from a man that has created what he has created. As you know, I've always found the attitude of bad man, therefore bad art to be totally unintellectual Mm. and often quite idiotic but I have to say it was quite weird at the end of Leaving Neverland I really did think I don't know how we listen to him and dance to him anymore truly I I think that might be it and I've never I've never really felt I never anticipated that I would feel something that absolute uh, on this subject but I just don't understand how celebrating his genius isn't willfully ignoring the pain of his victims and as you say from a personal perspective I don't think I will ever be able to listen to his music and not be reminded of the utterly horrifying things that I heard in that documentary and has opened my eyes up to a number of many other horrifying things that may have happened that we don't even know about yet. And personally, I don't think I'll be able to forget that. I actually tried a test on myself. I listened to it to see how I felt and I felt really, really uncomfortable. There was a, there's a particular line, which I can't say out loud, there's a particular line in the documentary that really struck me and I literally like don't feel comfortable Mm. saying it out loud but I I wrote it on my phone when I was talking about it with a friend and I was like this is the line Mm. and she was like that is that's the line that I hear Wade saying when I hear the music Mm. so I yeah I tried it and I can't do it and I don't want to do it I, I don't think there will be total erasure of Michael Jackson from popular culture I think he was too I think the impact of him and his art was too massive for that but that is definitely why the estate is counter suing for a hundred million I mean, that is a massive fucking sum. Piers Morgan kept saying, but there's a financial incentive, you know, to Wade Robson and James Safechak suing the estate, which, incidentally, I feel like this is really important to make clear. When someone has died, the only way to sue someone is to sue the estate. Mm. The only justice or retribution you can get is damages, which is money. So it's a sort of laughable point because you can't sue. There's no other way of seeking... There's no other way to sue. Yeah. And... 
that you see that in numerous cases that damages that that money is made to make a point in the absence of being able to make any other point. And also, um, if the estate aren't suing for financial gain, then like that back catalogue is what's made them billions. I think the estate has made four hundred million alone since Michael Jackson died. They are counter suing for a hundred million because, as Dan put it himself, I think in a, in another Vulture interview, every time a song from his back catalogue gets played, the estate goes ka-ching. Like, mm. they, are, they are paid for every time his mm. song is, is played. Which is also why the question of what do we do with his music it is not the most it's important, relevant, but, but it, it is, is relevant. relevant. People who have this weird, superstitious belief that because he made good music, he has to be a good man, which doesn't make any sense, does it? Um, but a lot of people hold to that and, you know, will never change their minds. And in fact, don't care that he was raping little children. Um, and, you know, I think that's sad, but true. So it's a very personal thing. I don't, I don't think he can be erased from popular culture. I think he's too big for that. But I do think that people will be wrestling with his legacy for quite a long time. I was never a big fan. So, um, I never really knew much about Jackson or his music. So, um, I've actually sort of become more curious about him and, mm. and you know, just, professionally really um uh could i listen to his music yes but then i'm steeped in the knowledge of what he's done and so i i'm not sort of um, there's no there's no disenchantment you know I, I sort of came to jackson's music in the knowledge that he was a paedophile i'm certainly not going to be playing it at my kids birthday party that's for sure i'm so so pleased that dan agreed to speak with you thank you very much to dan reed for his time and i'm so grateful that this documentary has been made and has started a long overdue conversation. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or you can tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.